with us. Good morning. We're going to be reading from Luke 11, verses 5 through 13, which is on page 963. There should be a Bible underneath your chair or the one in front of you. And if you need a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks find, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, if you would, keep those Bibles open and do take that Bible as a gift to you if you do not have one. We're going to get right to work this morning. Are you ready? It is, I, I tell you what, I, I, I've loved the series that we're in. This is our last week in this series on prayer. If you are just now joining us in person or online, my name is Evan Skelton, one of the pastors here. And like every week, we're going to be opening up God's Word to see what it says first and then seeing how, why it's so relevant to our lives. But in this series on prayer, this four-part series, we've looked at really the four essentials to prayer or four of the essentials. I could have covered many others. In this series, we're calling for, uh, calling our eyes are on you. Um, we've looked at dependence. We've looked at repentance. Last week, we looked at obedience. But this week, I've chosen one that doesn't rhyme, expectation. So this last essential, I think, is a really important one that many of us, um, at least if you're like me, can lack in our prayer lives. And if we want to have the kind of prayer life uh, that God seems to desire for us or have, have invited us into, a kind of prayer life that experiences him with real awe and intimacy, expectations, expectation is one of the most important parts of that kind of prayer. In this whole series, we've addressed what it is we must pray for and why we must pray at all. We've been speaking also of the things that, why we must pray in terms of the things that are external to us, the needs that we face, but also the things that are internal to us, the threat that sin, um, had, uh, sin possesses really over all of our lives. And, but still, the, the, the question has to be asked, and I've been asked this many times by many believers, what reason do I have to think that God actually does here? What reason do I have to expect that God actually responds? After all, so many of us struggle not only to pray, but if we're honest, to pray in a way that really expects God to show up, you wouldn't be the only person who prayed for something knowing that you should, but figuring in the back of your mind, you know, I'm not really sure this is going to change anything. I can't think of how many times I've prayed for those who are struggling, for instance, physically. And I end up praying mostly for comfort in the midst 
of their trial. I end up preaching another sermon in my prayer about all that's true about God's character, even while our bodies are very unpredictable. But then I can, so I can lack real expectation that God actually could provide, that he actually could give good news and not just bad. You uh, hear often, this is why you hear many Christians say really silly things like, prayer is primarily about changing our perspective on things. That is true, but this kind of K-sera-sera, whatever will be, will be attitude, has very little to do with the Bible. The Bible seems to assume prayer really does change things, at least from our perspective. Not just, and it, it doesn't just change our perspective, it doesn't just change our hearts. It's impossible to read the Bible and not see that our sovereign God actually answers the prayers of his people. But still, I recognize that many of us have a hard time believing this, which is why we're going to consider, again, this last essential to prayer, expectation, the basic conviction that God not only hears prayer, but that he loves to respond, and he loves to provide for us. And I am really so excited to wrap up our series on prayer in this way. So I want you uh, to keep your Bibles, again, open to Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. We're going to be looking at two parables from Jesus in turn— really two expectations that Jesus has about the kind of prayer that uh, will characterize his disciples. Two expectations Jesus has for our prayer life. Number one, ask. And number two, expect. If you are new to navigating the Bible, let me encourage you, if you've got a paper Bible in front of you, go to that table of contents. You'll find Luke. In the last third of your Bible, one of four Gospels, take your time in getting getting there. The large numbers will be the chapters, the small will be the verses. You can also look on your phone if you brought one of those today. But let's start with the first, ask. Now, before we get into this one, my, my kids are getting to an age where they really don't like to ask for help. My sons, this duo, uh, tell you what, they get up way too early for their own good. They have been, uh, for most of their lives, uh, getting up about 5 a.m., and Grace and I take turns still uh, getting up with them, depending on the day. I'd like to say that we're waking up bright and, bright and chipper right at 5 a.m., happy to be awa- awoken, but usually it's far, that's just not the truth. Uh, we, uh, this past week, we were woken up, nonetheless, uh, with some banging in the kitchen, um, only to discover uh, that uh, apparently our boys had woken up thirsty and had taken a uh, chair and pushed it up to the kitchen counter, climbed the chair, climbed onto the counter itself, and now we're digging cups out of the uh, cupboard itself. Now, thankfully, my wife caught themselves before they could get hurt, but Grace and I a- often ask ourselves, what in the world are these kiddos thinking? Given some of the grumpy responses we give them at 5 a.m., it makes sense why they would try and get a cup on their own. But nonetheless, isn't this like us? I mean, we, we struggle to ask God for help. I want us to consider for a second together why we don't pray, why we don't ask. In Luke chapter 11, we find Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. We won't look specifically at the verses before it today. They're enormously important, but in Luke chapter 11, we find one of two places in the Gospels where the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps it more accurately should be called the Disciples' Prayer. It is a a prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples to pray. 
And we find this so-called Lord's Prayer written down for us, a prayer that, again, Jesus tells them to, uh, to pray, or gives them to pray, a transcript, and he gives so uh, at their request. It's one of, uh, one of a few places, really a unique thing in the Gospels in which we, ask, we see the disciples asking Jesus to teach them directly on something. And what of all things does he, do they ask him to teach? To teach them how to pray. I don't know about you, but I find that enormously encouraging to know that even Jesus' disciples struggled in their prayer life. They struggled to know what to pray for, how to talk to God, especially how now to pray as Jesus' followers. After all, they say John the Baptist, he taught his disciples how to pray. It seems like something that Jesus would be concerned to teach us as well. And so they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. But in verse 5, we find Jesus turning from how how to pray, teaching them what to pray for, to telling them why to pray. Again, it seems we're not the first to struggle with our prayer lives. I know many here do, if you're anything like me. Maybe it's because God has not come through for you in the past as you expected. You've been asking for something over and over again, and God hasn't showed up for you, at least it seems, when it really mattered. Many people wonder how prayer could change anything if God already has a plan. They get tied up. They get their theology a little backwards, wondering, doesn't God already know what I need? Why do I need to pray? Still, I know quite a few religious people who struggle to pray simply because they're not sure what they would pray about when it came to it. Religious people perhaps can get really good or really bad about trying to operate on their own. And still a great many people aren't sure God would give attention to someone like us. God might pick, he might pick other people to listen to. He might pick up the phone call when another person calls, but we're pretty sure when we call, God screens it. Many people struggle to pray because they're not at all that sure that God is listening on the other end or that God cares enough to show up. And so Jesus gives us a really wonderful parable about an obnoxious neighbor. Let's look together at what Jesus says about why we can pray. Now, before our family moved to St. Louis and we were able to purchase a home, we lived in apartments for most of our married life and we had some obnoxious neighbors over those years. Anybody had an obnoxious neighbor? Many who woke us up in the middle of the night, it could have been a fight we were having or a, not we were having, sorry, that was a slip. Uh, No, a fight that they were having. or a crazy party, or because they fell asleep, believe it or not, to club music, sometimes because our baby was crying and they were banging on the floor for it to be quiet. Have I, have I mentioned how much I am so glad I'm not renting apartments anymore? And I empathize with those of you who are still. The picture here is of a neighbor, nonetheless, who is banging on the door of his neighbor and at midnight because he needs to borrow some bread. Now, this might seem really strange to many of us. I know I'm, there's, there's at least one person wondering here, why in the world would a request like this, why couldn't it wait till morning? What we don't realize about the first century world is that hospitality, the virtue of hospitality, was treated as something like a sacred duty. 
In many cultures, like that of ancient Israel, a guest was to be treated like a member of your family, sometimes even more, treated with more importance than a member of your family. When you received a guest, it was your obligation to meet their needs. Regardless of your income, regardless of your social position, regardless of what time they showed up at night, at least if you wanted to save face in the community. And here it seems a guest has shown up out of the blue to this neighbor in the dead of night, and this friend has nothing to put in front of them. And there was no 7-Eleven, no 24-hour Deerbergs in a village like this. What is this poor man going to do? He, has, he knows he has no other options than to see if his neighbor might have something that he could borrow. But still, it's midnight. And waking up his neighbor means not only will his neighbor have to get out of bed, but in a one-room house, like so many of the homes were during this time, families would sleep together in one family bed on a raised platform in the corner. Uh, We've had nights like that where it seems all of our kiddos, by the time the morning comes, have snuck into our bed. But this would be a nightly reality for many, and he knows that if he goes to waking up his neighbor, that would mean not just waking up the neighbor, but waking his whole family. You parents out there know, um, or if you've been a parent or you uh, have had parents, you know how uh, difficult it can be to get kids to sleep, let alone if those kids... Uh, You need to get them back to sleep when they've been woken up in the middle of the night. As desperate as his neighbor is, this would have been an absolutely obnoxious request. He knows he's about to become that kind of neighbor. Anyone else find his friend's groggy response absolutely hilarious? And to summarize, he basically says, I mean, bro, you've got to be kidding me. Do you know what time it is? Can't you see I just got Mary and Martha to bed? Go away. Go away before someone hears you. I I can't help you. I don't know what you want me to do. Which is why Jesus asks, in a sense, which of you has the nerve to do something like this? What's Jesus' point? Well, prayer can seem a little bit like this. I realize modern people so often reduce their idea of God to something like my pal or my buddy. Someone you would have no problem bothering at midnight. If God exists at all, of course God would help. After all, isn't that that God's job? But if we take what the Bible says seriously about God, coming to that God can make us shake in our boots a bit. This is the one, after all, the Bible calls sovereign Lord, King of the universe. Most High, Lord of armies, everlasting God. He is the Lord seated on the throne who causes angels to hide their faces and the prophet Isaiah to cry, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is a God who demands absolute respect, even reverence. And so bothering him, quote unquote, it's... with my small request, can seem not just impolite, it can seem downright rude, out of place. Even Jesus' disciples may have wondered, like we do, "Not not a chance God wants to be bothered with this. Doesn't he have more important things to do? Am I, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna save my request for something that really matters when I don't have any other options. And when it comes down to it, we wonder, would God even listen to me when I called? 
Perhaps the very reason the disciples ask Jesus to teach on prayer is because they want to make sure that they're not praying wrongly, that they're not going to say something that won't tick God off, that cause him to hang up the phone. And yet, even with all that the Bible has to say about the majesty and the holiness of God, let alone how undeserving I am to stand before that God, Jesus tells us, go ahead and ask. In a sense, he tells them, and this is letter C, to pray with nerve. After all, notice what verse 8 says. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Now that's just honest, isn't it? I mean, just to be honest, which of your friends would you go rifling through the fridge for on, at midnight? He says not because he's his friend, yet because of what? Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The word impudence is not a word that you probably use very often. It means something like a lack of sensitivity. It means uh, something like a lack of respect or a lack of modesty. It might even be along the same lines of rude. It means something like being shameless about how this whole thing appears. Now, I don't mean we should be disrespectful in our prayers, but it's still impossible to remove the strangeness from prayer itself. In prayer, to be honest, we have the audacity to expect that God will hear us. The God, who right now is overseeing governments of the world, rotating the Milky Way on its axis, holding the very cells of your body together, preparing all things for the final judgment. We are expecting that God to hear us and respond. Jesus' point is not that God is like a groggy neighbor, grumpy to be wakened from sleep. No, his point is this. If if the most irritated neighbor will respond to a bold request, you have even more reason to be, go- to be bold with a gracious God. We'll look at more of why this is in a moment. But we have even more reason, again, to be bold with a gracious God. According to Jesus, you can pray with real nerve. And we can pray in big ways for the things that are way above our pay grade. After all, we should not be able to call on God at all. And yet Jesus tells us to, expecting that God really does hear you and care. This is not the only way that Jesus tells us to pray. He tells us also to pray with persistence. Notice in verse 9 and 10. Letter D, pray with persistence. In verse 9 and 10, Jesus expands on this. He goes even further saying, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Three times in three different ways, Jesus tells us to ask. And in case we didn't get it, he repeats himself all over again in the next verse. It's important to point out something that we might miss actually in our English translations, that even though ask, seek, and knock might appear to be one-time, uh, one-and-done activities, they are actually ongoing. They are continuous, something that you're to persist in. The assumption of ask is that you will keep asking, that you will keep knocking, that you will keep seeking. In other words, we aren't only to pray with nerve, we are to pray with persistence. Later in Luke 18, Jesus will tell them more parables, and let's put that on the screen, if you would. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. I don't know about you, but I can lose heart in my prayer life. 
The good thing is God knows this. Jesus knows us so well. I'm convicted even now of the things I should and don't pray for for regularly, let alone the things that I have given up on praying for entirely. Only Jesus tells us not only to pray, but to press on in our prayer life. There are certain things we should never let up the gas on. In fact, in verse 10, it says... When Jesus repeats himself, putting the emphasis, it doesn't just put itself on the ask, on the seek, and the knock. It puts itself on the all, that everyone who prays in this way can expect a response. Not just the religious, not just the well-connected, not just those who have been coming to church and reading the Bible since they were young, not just those who might seem to deserve God's attention. You see, if it is really true that all of us are as bad off as the Bible says, if we really are, as Jesus puts it, evil, in this passage, then none of us deserve God's attention on our own merits. But through the merits of Jesus, any of us can expect to receive that attention. We'll get to what to do when it seems God doesn't answer your prayers in a second. But Jesus teaches us to persist in our prayer life. For like a neighbor knocking at the door, anyone can expect that it will be opened. Do you have trouble believing this? Practically speaking, I have to tell you I do, which is why we need to look at the second parable and Jesus' second expectation, not simply that we ask, but that we expect. So why is is it that we can expect that God would give us such attention and such concern? Many today are still talking about this idea of the power of positive thinking. Okay, the power of positive thinking. Recently, it's gotten a modern makeover called manifesting. You guys familiar with this terminology or seen it on Instagram? Manifesting your reality. The idea is still that if you have, if you put enough positive energy out into the universe, you are bound to get some good in return. The idea that if you believe something hard enough for long enough, my deepest desires and my most desperate prayers are bound to become reality. As Cinderella put it, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish for will come true. I'm not going to sing it for you, but is this what Jesus means? Is this why we should expect God to hear and respond to our prayers? Is it just because this is how the universe works and because it's God's job? Well, despite what Cinderella or Oprah or Joel Osteen might have to say, this idea has very little to do with the Bible. According to the Bible, I shouldn't be able to expect attention and concern from God, at least on my own merits, especially the creator God. Now, Jesus doesn't gloss over that reality at all, but still he assumes that through Jesus, through the work that Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection, something fundamental has changed in my relationship to God. Let's look closely at that second parable. I want to read these verses, actually. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Why does Jesus tell us to, to pray with shameless persistence? Because God has become our Father. And a good one at that. I want to break this down a bit for us. Let's look first at God the Father. The Bible gives us several different pictures for who God is. A lion, a rock, a shepherd, 
a king, but the image of father seems to stand out from the rest, particularly when you get into the last third of your Bible, the New Testament. We find God there referred to as father over 165 times in the four gospels, making this title one of the most distinctive features of Christianity. You see, compare this to Islam, in which you have 99 names for Allah. 99 names for Allah. Not one of them is Father. And prior to Jesus, even Jewish writers avoided speaking of God in this way. God could be the Father of creation. He, would be, he was spoken of as the Father of Israel. But no one dared address God as our Father, my Father, After all, such a personal, intimate address would feel inappropriate. It would feel blasphemous. Who could claim to have that kind of special relationship with the Almighty God? Well, according to Jesus, his disciples can. In fact, after Jesus, calling God our Father became commonplace among his followers. They started doing the audacious thing of calling God their Father. In fact, it would seem that anyone who has come to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Anyone who has come to put their faith in Jesus has come to know his father as he does. Why does this matter? After all, depending on what your relationship was like with your dad, father might not exactly be a word of honor. I'll tell you what, literally, I I lay awake at night, uh, Afraid of what meaning I am putting into that word for our kids? Looking back at Jesus' illustration, it's meant to be funny, though, and absolutely ridiculous. Whether you're a parent or not, you know that no parent would give their child a snake or a scorpion. Not even the worst parents, right? In fact, did you notice that he calls this, these parents, he calls the parents here evil? Don't you love his honesty? Every parent is broken, and if you are a parent, you know it very clearly. No one shows off your brokenness more than your kids do. That's right, amen. They may not always uh, make, uh, you know, so, but here, all parents, even the bad parents, they still want to do what's best for their children. Now, they may not always make decisions accordingly, and their motives may be mixed up with a whole heap of selfishness, but even the really bad parents, even the real screw-ups, desire to give their kids a good life. I know some of the kids out here, you have trouble believing that some days, but it is true from your parents, even the ones that you might call evil. When a child asks for a fish— Is a parent going to give them a snake when a child asks for an egg? Are they going to give them a scorpion? Heck no! Of course, that's in the Greek. I'm just kidding. You'll see it's important that we don't import all of our baggage from our dads into what it means for God to be our father. God is not a father like I am a father. It is more like the other way around. According to the Bible, the dad you long for, the one you wish you had, has a name. He is the father to which the best in our fathers point, having nothing of their worst. He is the best father, and that even the best father cannot uh, compare with his glad-hearted, self-giving generosity because this father always gives good things to those who ask him. This leads to God, our father, not just the father, our father. What does this mean? Prior to Jesus... I have to tell you, this was not our relationship with God. This is why Christianity is so 
distinctive in calling God our Father because the assumption is that God stood in a different kind of relationship to us. We weren't born into this relationship of fatherly care, of affection and protection. According to the Bible, we were born outside of that relationship. In fact, the only relationship we had with God was one of animosity, according to the Bible. We instead didn't belong to a father. We belonged instead to a master, a cruel slave master of sin itself. It was as if we had no father. I realize it might sound a little harsh to put it this way, but it's important that we do so so that we can understand how good it is to call God our Father now if you are a Christian. Friends, the reason Jesus' disciples can call him Father is because God decided to mess with things. In Christ, God secured our forgiveness so that the slaves of sin, his enemies, could experience, could experience something they never could have expected He chose to adopt these slaves, these outsiders, into his family to be treated no longer as outsiders or as enemies, but as sons and daughters. Friends, to experience God's fatherly care, you have to, to, in a sense, be adopted into it. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is to be adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you are adopted into God's family, all of God's fatherly care, all of it comes to you. He holds nothing of it back. The things only Jesus deserves are now bound up with your future. This means that if you belong to God as your father, God will never falter in his passionate concern for you. It won't flicker or fade even for a moment because of his son, Jesus Christ, the true son. All of the privileges of being a son or daughter are coming to you because of the Son, God will always be for you. And so, as long, so long as the Son, Jesus Christ, is deserving, God always will be your Father and a good one at that. The reason, and the only reason, you can ask and expect God to answer is not because you have done enough for God or earned his love or because you are connected with the right people. The only reason you can expect God to answer you is because he is your father. I love how Timothy Keller puts this. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. This leads third to God the good father. I want to press on on this because you and I both know, just to be honest, many of our prayers seem to go unanswered. God often doesn't respond as we expect, does he? I don't know how many times I've had to say to friends and people I love, I don't know. To people I love who are wondering where God could be. I don't know why God always allows the things that he does, perhaps even often, and can sometimes appear to be silent. I know that sometimes it is because his answer is no, or not yet. Sometimes God answers our prayers and we come to regret what we asked for. I don't know why God so often responds the way he does, but I do know something that is more concrete. I know that how God responds is always for our good. 
In fact, sometimes he doesn't answer because God has something even better in store than what we've asked. Friends, our father is not cruel. Our father is not an idiot. Our father always gives good gifts to those who ask him. We may not always agree on what those good things are, but we will not disagree forever. Now let me, hear, let me hear from me very clearly. That doesn't mean that everything that happens to you is good, nor does God consider it good. There are some things that God agrees with you that are very evil. But I, I do know, as Timothy Keller puts it later, there is coming a day in which we will no longer disagree with God. There's coming a day in which we will see that God has answered our prayers how he would if we knew what he did. Our God gives and delights to give good gifts to those he loves, and they will always be seen to be good in the end. So we're a promise that God makes, specifically those who are Christians who are bound up to Jesus in faith, for God works in all things for the good of those who love him, Now, that doesn't mean that all things are good, friends. It doesn't mean that you should look at somebody who is suffering abuse, the deepest loss and death, and say, put a smile on your face. Who are you to call this good? Don't be Job's friends, if you're familiar with his story. But it means that God is accomplishing purposes for you that are for your good. He can be trusted as your father. You don't have to con him or pay him off. You don't have to wring something out of him that he does not want to give to you. Your father is not cruel. He is not an idiot. He wants good for you, more than you do if you can believe it. And he is more able than any parent to see what that good is and to give it. Now, I need to say a word again of clarification here. As Bible scholar Daryl Bach puts it, prayer is not a blank check for whatever we want. Let me say that again. Prayer is not a blank check for whatever we want. James tells us in his letter, if we can put that verse on the screen, that sometimes God hasn't answered us because we haven't asked. Well, that's just straightforward. Sometimes God hasn't answered because we haven't asked him. But then also, a very real possibility is you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What does this mean? Because we ask with selfish motives. That's perhaps why sometimes God doesn't provide for us because we're asking for the wrong things, for the wrong reasons. God isn't bound like some pushover parent or some like divine vending machine to give us whatever we ask for. Would a parent be somehow justified, looking back at our passage, to give their child a scorpion or a snake just because the child had asked for it? No, that would be a bad parent. Prayer isn't a blank check for whatever we want, but it is a blank check request for whatever God wants and whatever is for our good, bound up with our good. Now, we can't always see that very clearly. Perhaps we need to take an honest look at our prayers, though, asking, would God agree with what I'm asking for? Sometimes we need to say, okay, maybe God wants more for me than just a change of my circumstances, more popularity, more success. Maybe he wants more for me than just a relief from my pain, as much as we long for that more than anything else. Maybe God sees needs that are greater for me. Maybe in the midst of this, he makes use of some of the greatest pains in our life so that we would know him have him as our greatest need. In fact, when the Bible says to seek and you will find, you know what that phrase is most often used for? Is to seek God, to seek his face. 
Pray and seek him to know him, to know him particularly in your trials and suffering, and God will provide for you. God is a good father who gives good things to those he loves. We can pray with nerve. Pray with nerve, friends. Pray with persistence, friends. The Bible gives us permission, in a sense, to argue with God, to ask God for the very things he says he loves and desires, the things that he has revealed in his word, not arguing with a sense of disrespect, but reminding myself and bringing back to God what he himself has said about himself, what he has said he loves, what he is accomplishing in his purposes. Not because we're trying to twist God's arm or trying to mash the buttons on a vending machine, and definitely not because we're trying to name it and claim it, but because God in his word has revealed himself in his word, we know the things that God loves to give, and we have permission and examples in the Bible to plead with God in light of his character and honor, in light of our desire for him to receive the glory that he is due, and for those we love to experience the joy that comes with knowing and obeying him. We can ask and expect that God gives and loves to give good gifts. He is your father, after all. Now, that doesn't silence all of our questions. It doesn't mean that we don't, in community, ask God why. We have plenty of examples where you have many who plead with God saying, God, will you forget me forever? Where is your justice? It's because they know their God's character that they can plead for it. The proof you are looking for that a God is a God you can trust, a God who is your father, is found in the gospel. One of the verses I have found the greatest comfort in over the years is Romans 8, 32. If we can put that on the screen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, this isn't, don't read in that, how will he not graciously with us give us a Ferrari? or a girlfriend, or a better job. The all things here is himself. The all things there is a a heart that is transformed by the grace of Christ Christ and comes to depend and find in him their all. We doubt that God loves us enough to meet our needs. God did not spare his own son for us. He gave him up for us all, giving him over to death that we might share in his life. And through him, as our passage points out, he has given us his spirit, your counselor, your teacher, your proof that God is not and will not ever be done with you. It is, in a sense, in other words, he has given us the good gift. God, at infinite cost, has given us himself. At infinite cost to himself, has given us himself. We doubt that God is powerful enough, that God loves us enough to meet our needs. Friends, if even a grumpy neighbor responds in a moment of need, won't your heavenly father? You see why expectation is so important in our prayer life and it's so difficult for so many of us? It goes back to what we believe about God and we're gonna, you might have things in your life right now that you're honestly, when it comes down to it, you're not sure God would show up for you. What does your prayer life reveal about what you believe about your father? Now again, we cannot twist his arm or force him to show up in a certain way. Sometimes we open our hands and say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. The only reason we can do that is because we know the good things that God has in store and has gone to infinite lengths for. A good that he is 
preserving for us, keeping safe for us, an inheritance he one day will give us in the end. He will deliver us safely over. He is the father you can trust. And in a church in which, many ways, one of the reasons we are doing this series on prayer is because we have real needs towards our self-sustainability. We need God to show up in a big way for us. Members of this church are aware for decades that we need God to preserve the mission he, well, not preserve, he needs to preserve, again, our self-sustainability so we can be faithful in the mission that he's entrusted us. But this good father loves our church. We can go with boldness. We can go with persistence together, asking God to provide, knowing he is a good father, loves to give good, give good gifts. In fact, all these prayers are not You'll, what we notice here is they're not just prayers given to individuals. The you here is in a sense you all or y'all or you know, I think it, the St. Louis way of putting it is use. Is that right? Use? Is that not true? I was told that. Somebody told me that regardless. That's more of a Chicago, no, New York, New York thing. All right, regardless. I'm, new, I'm the newbie here. Nonetheless, it's us in community praying these things together. But friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer even now. Lord, we come to you as those who don't pray often enough. We don't pray about the things that we should. We don't know you well enough. And it shows off, um, it shows off in what we ask for and how infrequently we ask for it. Lord, thank you that you give us the reassurance through the gospel itself that you really do and know and perceive our greatest need. You've provided it in securing our forgiveness. And so often we, can, we, can ex- we endure loss, betrayal, one day even death. And Paul even can say he's learned the secret of contentment in all of these things because he knows a father who is delivering him safe to the end and his church safe to the end. A good father who can be trusted, who gives good things to those who ask. And so I pray that we would pray more frequently and with more expectation than we ever have trusting that you do provide in your wisdom. You may not provide as we expect, but we not stop, in a sense, in a godly way, arguing with you for the things that we know that you love, that we would see you provide in ways that you get the glory for. We expect that our God is a God of power, that our God is not done with us, that our God is the same God who woke Jesus up from the dead and still wakes up sinners to life in his Son. And so, Lord, we come to you as those who have our eyes now on Jesus Christ, our example, our reassurance, who want to pray with nerve and persistence, knowing we can only do so because we, you have become our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.